You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen with Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Hey. So how have you guys been doing? Doing good. Good. We had a huge storm yesterday, but it's sunny here today. So I'm very excited. It's, um, we hit a hot snap this week. And so it all of a sudden went up to 90 and I'm really sad because all of my little orange bells on my vines died. So now they're like a really deep maroon and kind of creepy looking. Whereas before they were just these really pretty bright pops of color in my backyard. Um, and I can't keep anything alive except for my children. It was good. Do you still have orange trees? And you were talking about fruit trees one time. What have you, do you have those kind of things growing yet in your backyard? So I have a lemon tree in my backyard that um, is so jealously new. It's only three years old and it takes them a couple years to fruit. So this is the first year that I saw blossoms. I am hopeful that something is coming. I have a pomegranate tree that is not fruited yet. And I have a peach tree. A pomegranate tree? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. That is really exotic, Carrie. I really think that's cool. Pomegranate trees are actually all over the place here and people really? like, and my mom lives in Arizona and she has her, the neighbors right behind her house. They have this huge grove of pomegranate trees. And so all she has to do is reach up and over and grab them at that, at this time of year, really. That is wow. crazy. My parental units, like I said, live in Arizona. So they have a ton of <laughs> oranges and lemons and figs and, and, just grapefruit and a ton of uh, citrus. And so like yesterday I get, um, my stepdad makes me these water bottles that are full of just straight lemon juice. And so when it gets hot outside, I just thaw them, dump a couple in water, sugar, instant lemonade. Oh man, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I'm trying to nurture, nurture my little fig tree. I've had this or fig bush. I've had this bush for many years. My mom had a fig that grew at her house and she rooted it for me and I've nurtured it and babied it for years. And finally, for some reason this year, it just sprouted up. And right now, which is the earliest it's I've ever seen a fig on, it has these big figs. Now they're green. So I don't, I had trouble kind of with the figs growing and, and kind of actually getting ripened last year. So I'm hoping that these are going to ripen, but it it's, this is the best year we've ever had. So I think I'm, I'm excited about that. Hopefully it bodes well. So Abby, I don't know if I should bring this up at all, or if you already know this, do you know the relationship between figs and wasps? No, tell me. I don't know. So there are, there's a special type of wasp. It's like a fig wasp and it goes inside the fig. Don't tell me that, Carrie. No. We we were just talking about how risk averse Abby is and now she's going to go dig up her tree. Don't burst my bubble. I have pretty figs right now. Don't burst my bubble. And they will be delicious wrapped in bacons and bacon and stuffed with blue cheese. With a wasp in the middle? Well, no, they're like, it. it's part of the fig. Like it turns into part of the fig. What? You don't know that you're eating. True story. Look it up. That sounds like an urban legend, Carrie. It is not. The wasps help with the fertilization and the pollination of it. Really? And figs are an inverted flower. They're not actually a fruit, which seems weird, but fine, whatever. So the fig blooms inside the pod 
And because it's all contained, the fig wasp actually goes inside the fig in order to pollinate it. Um, and so does that mean I've had fig wasp here and I just don't know it? Probably. Okay. So I'm, I'm actually Googling this as we talk. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So fig trees have no visible flowers. Right. That is true. Yes. Also, their sap is really sticky and yeah. because it's super irritating and their leaves are really irritating. So be careful as you're gardening. Oh, okay. Oh, this is interesting. All fig trees are pollinated by very small wasps of the family Aegeondiae. Um, crazy. No kidding. Wow. I was a biology major, Carrie. How did I miss out on this part of this? How did I not find that out? There was, so there was a behavioral ecology class when I went to college and it was one of like, <laughs> it was a, it was a blow off biology class, which it wasn't. I actually did horribly in it because when I sat in the lectures, I was just so enthralled with all the, <laughs> the guy was telling me I didn't take any notes. Was this before or after the summer you worked at the wastewater treatment plant? It was the year after I did the wastewater. Okay. Just curious. Yeah. Trying to piece your whole history together here. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true. It's a fig wasps are, are a good thing because they make their fig trees. Yeah. I think I'm going to go try and buy some and maybe breed some fig wasp or whatever. So I can have more figs then. <laughs> <laughs> sure if I should have brought that up or if I should have just let it go. So what you're really saying is my fig tree was knocked up by wasp and that's why I've got figs now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. The wasps fell near tree. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. I have no idea where we started on this. Oh, we were talking about fruit trees and lemonade and, <laughs> and my dead flowers. Are, are we ready to go to our question of the day? I, th- I think we are. I kind of got, got, got diverted by all that. I was just still trying to process the fig wasp thing. But yeah, I think we're on to our question of the day. Okay, question of the day. I will come up with random animal factoids again for a future episode. It's all good. It's all good. Okay, so our question of the day. It says, my wife and I have been trying to conceive for three years now. We've had all the tests done, and unfortunately, we've fallen into the, quote, unexplained infertility segment. After some prodding, I've convinced my wife to start the process of hormones and IUI. I only bring this up to demonstrate context on my wife's general reticence towards the, quote, medical industrial complex, end quote. I do not share these views. The latest is she doesn't want either of us to get vaccinated because of the risk mRNA could pose long-term to future embryos. Are there resources you could point me to that breaks down in a simple, cogent way? Why introducing synthetic mRNA into your body poses no risk to either your eggs or sperm? Thank you. So part of this is knowing just what mRNA is, does, and how long it lasts. mRNA is not a long-lasting cellular construct, it, it really in any circumstances, it gets made, it does its job, and it degrades. And so when you look at mRNA, it is typically gone within a matter of hours. Um, and so it does not last very long. And you have to look at some of the logistics involved here. So the mRNA COVID vaccines get, get placed into your arm. And the likelihood of that mRNA traveling all the way down to your uterus before it gets degraded is exceedingly, exceedingly small. Um, There is no infiltration of the mRNA mRNA into DNA at all. DNA is the master set of instructions for the cell, whereas 
RNA, you know, mRNA in particular, there's a couple of different types of RNA, but mRNA in particular are the, the workers. And so they send out kind of the, the functional instructions. They get it from the DNA and then they pass it along. Um, they get degraded really pretty quickly. And so there's no chance of it intercalating into the DNA of a child. Or stated simply, like someone said many times before, it's kind of like an email. You get an email, you read it, you act on it, and you delete it. And so that's the simplistic way to say it. It, it goes away. It's not, it doesn't get incorporated into your DNA. So you won't have like x-ray vision or, you know, people won't be able to send messages to you through your DNA at that point. You know, all the urban legends out on the internet. Yeah, no superpowers except not getting a deadly disease. So Susan, to summarize that, what would be your recommendation for women who are thinking about getting pregnant or even getting pre- or are pregnant about the vaccine? You know, at this time, I think it the data really leans towards get the vaccine as soon as you can because not only does it seem to have no effect on fertility, if you get COVID-19 while you're pregnant, data's coming out that doesn't look good. I mean, increased risk of miscarriages, stillbirths, other pregnancy complications. Um, on the male side, you know, if you end up with COVID-19 and you end up with the high fevers and things like that, realize that that can definitely affect your sperm counts for a number of months. Um, and so, you know, it's it's one of those things that, there's definitely risk versus benefit, okay? But really the risks of the vaccines um, currently really seem to be in the in the favorable side of, of go get your vaccine. And the nice thing is, is if you're over age 16 in the United States right now, and we are, we are quite lucky that we have vaccine available. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if you happen to be in an area or have been having trouble getting your vaccine, talk to your doctors, because we know of kind of all these places where you can go get vaccines, you know, whether it's at local hospitals or at the pharmacies or different doctor's offices in your community. Um, the data really does support at this point in time to take advantage of it. And it's the comparison is not, do I get the vaccine versus do I not get the vaccine? The comparison is, do I get the vaccine and avoid this deadly disease or do I not get the vaccine and run a high chance of getting this deadly disease that could be even worse because I am pregnant when I get it? And so knowing the comparison is important because like Susan and Abby said, getting it in pregnancy, you know, you have a higher chance of, and there's good data for this, hospitalized, ventilated, ICU, blood clots, deceased. And that's just for mom. That doesn't include any of the baby stuff. Um, and so, you know, as far as resources go, CDC is a really good site. Um, right now, I, ACOG uh, has some information on it. ACOG, um, that is the National Society of uh, Obstetrician um, and Gynecologists. Um, ASRM, which is our National Society, has some information about it. Um, you know, right now we're in a phase where the best information is actually coming out in, in the scientific articles to show you what the risks are. Um, oh, not a huge amount of that has been translated to, you know, LASPE, um, but or lay terms. But, you know, something, something to think about is the protection you're getting, not just for you, but for your entire family. 
One resource that I really enjoy that I do think kind of translates things into lay speak really well is there is an epidemiologist. Her name is Caitlin, K-A-T-E-L-Y-N, Jetlina. And I'm not sure if I'm mispronouncing this, but it's J-E-T-E-L-I-N-A. And you can subscribe to her um, and get emails um, about... She talks about different epidemiological issues. Right now, it's very, you know... COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccine related. There is a service you can pay for, but I get the free one and it's a it's a great email. And um, it really kind of breaks down like why things are as they are and takes some of the, the things that make life a little more confusing and breaks it down into um, kind of normal terms. Very good. Well, good information. So today we're going to talk a little bit about premature ovarian failure. We're going to talk a little bit about how the diagnosis is made, kind of what that means for you, and then what testing that we may want to do um, to look for other associated things that can come along with having the diagnosis of premature ovarian failure. So Carrie, why don't you start us out and tell us what the definition of premature ovarian failure would be? So premature ovarian failure, premature ovarian insufficiency, because one thing that we're all becoming more cognizant of is how the names of things impact how people think of them. And it's not, when we say ovarian failure, it's not like your ovaries took a test, they they, didn't pass, and it is some reflection on you. So this is not something you didn't study for and therefore failed. This is something that's just a a biologic process. So typically, um, a diagnosis of POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, or POF, um, is Going into menopause early, typically prior to uh, earlier than the age of 40. Um, And so it means lack of periods. It means uh, having the symptoms associated with menopause that go along with lack of periods. Hot flashes are usually the most predominant, but mood swings and vaginal dryness can go along with it. Um, And it means that when you check blood work and look at FSH levels specifically, you tend to have much, much higher levels. What's FSH, Carrie? follicle-stimulating hormone, the brain hormone that goes from the brain to the ovaries to tell them, this is what you need to do, make me an egg. Um, And so those levels should be low because normally when your brain is talking to your ovaries, it should be talking an inside voice. And so the level should be low. And if those levels are high, it means that your brain is yelling because the the ovaries are not listening to that inside voice. And so the brain- That's some estrogen. Exactly. Exactly. We make good voices, Susan. (laughs) We're what your brain sounds like, Carrie. Yeah. Those are the angry brain cells. Um, So yeah, so that's what, anytime you've got someone who is starting to show the signs of menopause early, typically prior to the age of 40, that's considered premature. Okay. So that's the definition. So Susan, how do we make the diagnosis or how do we start to figure out what's going on if somebody comes in and they're worried about it? Right. So, you know, people can present at various ages with premature ovarian insufficiency. Sometimes people present in their teen years, so they never really start having periods. um, And we're trying to figure out why that that is. And then there's other people who may present a little bit later in life, whether in their 20s or 30s, um, they don't have periods, they may be having some of these symptoms. Sometimes they, they have a misdiagnosis. I mean, we've all had people who have been told, oh, you've got PCOS or polycystic ovaries, that's why you're not having regular periods. And then they come and see us and we're like, 
oh, pooey. That's, that's not what, you know, PCOS, I, you know, I love seeing my PCOS people because relatively speaking on the spectrum of what we deal with, that, that tends to be an easier thing for us to deal with to achieve pregnancy. And then to come find out that, oh no, it's not that you're, you have lots and lots and lots of eggs. You actually have very few. So um, the first thing is clinical suspicion. So, you know, part of our job is always to worry about the worst things. This is among those things we really don't want you to have to be facing. So we're always worried about it. And so that's the reason why we, we do ovarian reserve testing, even in people who, you know, think they may have things like PCOS because sometimes we get surprised. So what kind of ovarian reserve testing would you do? What does that mean? So generally I, I, I do kind of three pieces of ovarian reserve testing to put them all together because no ovarian reserve testing is perfect. So the first thing that I do generally is what we call an antral follicle count. So on your ovaries, um, there are little follicles, little fluid-filled sacs that contain your eggs. And your body two months ago decided which ones were going to essentially have a little bit of fluid in them this month so that we could see them. And this is the cohort from which your body could select usually a single follicle to grow and release an egg to hopefully be fertilized, et cetera. Um, so we do can do an ultrasound and look at the antral follicle count. Now, generally speaking, I would consider a normal antral follicle count to be something 10 or higher. Something less than 10 is concerning. Okay. Again, there's no absolutes when it comes to this, but when you put the pieces together, that's where you kind of add them up. Well, and, and one thing I was going to add too about antral follicle count, you're right. More is always better, but it can also vary from month to month. And also if you're on something like if you're, if you've been on birth control pills or something to con control your periods, sometimes that can make the numbers look low as well. So don't panic if you have a low number just one time, because it there's other factors, mitigating factors that can cause that. And skill level matters for who is looking at that antral follicle. Yeah. This is something where your, your regular ultrasound tech in a radiology suite is probably not as attuned to looking at that specific piece of information on your ovaries. That's where a fertility office really comes in helpful because that's what they're looking at every single day. And kind of along that that thing, you know, a lot of people will come to us with, they've already quote, had a full gyne ultrasound, you know, that type of thing. And I'm always like, well, there are things that I look at that aren't looked at generally on those other ultrasounds. And very, very rarely does anybody make a comment on an antral follicle count unless you've been scanned at a reproductive endocrinologist's office. Even your OB-GYN office probably is not going to look at antral follicle count. That would be the exception than the rule. And that's a big distinction too between patients who have PCOS, even though it's not definitive, you know, typically somebody with PCOS that has irregular periods because of that, they have lots and lots and lots of follicles. And so, you know, if you're going to your doctor's office and you're a little worried, oh my gosh, could I have premature ovarian failure? If you have an ultrasound done and we see lots of follicles, it's very unlikely that you have premature ovarian failure. Exactly. And then uh, the other things that I generally look at, like Carrie mentioned, I do an FSH and estradiol level at the same time because FSH does actually rise and fall at different points of the cycle. And it, the FSH is what the brain's producing that talks to the ovary and the ovary produces the estrogen to talk back to the brain. So we have to see how that feedback loop is working to make sure we're catching that value at the right time to make sure it's actually a valid value. So if you have 
quote, a normal FSH, which again, I kind of generally say anything less than 10 in most circumstances is going to be normal between 10 to 18 is concerning over 18 is very concerning. Um, that if you happen to have a high estrogen level at the time that blood draw was made, that tells us that that FSH value is really not valid for what we're looking at at this point in time. So we need that estrogen level to be low to see kind of what is your baseline FSH level. Um, And then I also do an AMH level or anti-mullerian hormone level, which gives us um, kind of a secondary look mainly at quantity. Uh, I think of FSH as being, you know, focusing more, a little more on quality, AMH focusing a little bit more on quantity. There is overlap on both of them, but that's kind of how I put them together in my brain. So Susan, say, and Carrie, you can certainly chime in on this too. Say you've been to your OBGYN's office and they've checked your FSH and you don't really know where you are in your cycle because you're not having a cycle and say it's like 80. Would that be something that would warrant checking your estrogen before you make a diagnosis or would that worry you or what are your thoughts? So typically when you see a level that is that high, I mean, by the, by the time you've got a level really that's over about 20, regardless of what your estradiol level is, we know that there's some conversations coming. Um, Not good news, right? (laughs) You know, your, your estradiol, if your FSH is high and your estradiol is high, that tends to be just bad news because the estradiol is lowering the level. So if your estradiol is high and your FSH is 80, then in reality... It should be even higher. It is going to be even higher when the estradiol goes down. And so um, typically whenever we're getting those levels and, we, and someone brings them to us from an OBGYN office, we always repeat them because verify everything, make sure there's no fluke and it's really your result and all of that. But in general, it's real. Um, and there are some people who will have a really high level. And then when we happen to check, it goes really low. And, and typically what that means is that there has been a follicle that's been produced and, and has come out. And so it has provided adequate suppression to bring that FSH level down. But as fertility docs, when we're giving someone prognosis to say, okay, this is what we think is likely to happen and what the chances of in our case, usually getting pregnant happens, um, we're looking at, okay, what's what's the worst set of numbers? Because that is the most telling. Because that tells us, all right, how much medication are we, are we going to have to give down the line? So when you've got someone who's got an FSH of 80, even if the month that we check it, it's down to eight, you know, we know that, that there's some serious issues going on with egg production and quantity and quality. So you can never forget the worst FSH or the worst AMH, right? You always have that in the back of your mind. Correct. And part of the way that we also know that is that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was a pretty standard practice to do FSH and estradiol levels every month and then go forward on, quote, a good month. And what they found was that pregnancy outcomes weren't different on a good month, that essentially your ovaries act like your worst FSH. So say someone's gotten the diagnosis of premature ovarian failure, and we kind of focused a little bit on fertility, what other tests would you do with the knowledge that that person has a diagnosis of premature ovarian failure? So one of the first tests that I would do is a, um, well, a couple of genetic tests. So first of all, I would do a chromosome test or a karyotype to see if 
the woman has a chromosome reason um, for not having kind of normal ovarian reserve, most likely being um, having only one X chromosome or having a combination of cells, what we call mosaicism of where we might have one X chromosome and some cells, what we call a Turner's mosaic. Would that vary whether the woman was 39 or 29 or 19? Would you, would you do a chromosome test in somebody that's 39 with premature ovarian failure? If they're less than 40, I would still do it because they could be a Turner's mosaic. And if they're a Turner's mosaic, um, we have to be, you know, if they're thinking about potentially using some treatments, like maybe using a donor egg or something like that, we know that there's an increased risk of issues with their heart and their vasculature associated with the heart that could put them at high risk of having serious complications in pregnancy. So it's not something I would want to miss. Yeah, my only concern with that is sometimes it, it's it's an expensive test and a lot of patients can't pay for it. I personally, and everybody's different, would lean toward maybe doing it if they're under 30. What about you, Carrie? What would you do? I typically do it if they're under 40. Um, and there's two reasons for it. One, because if we're going ahead and getting them pregnant with donor egg, there's a much higher morbidity and mortality during pregnancy for patients who have Turner syndrome. And so I'm going to want to get an echocardiogram to look at their heart and make sure that their aortic valve root is well behaved and there's no co-arched and there's no, no problems going on. Um, and, and the other part of the reason why I do it is that oftentimes people have a, a pretty strong desire to know why. And, and the other thing is that if, if I find someone who's got, let's say, a Turner syndrome where they're missing an X chromosome, the, the prognosis that I'm going to give that person is, is not hugely different, but maybe a little bit different than what I would tell someone where we can't find an etiology or where we know that it's something else like fragile X, where Susan was talking about getting some carrier testing. So oftentimes that's what we're looking for is we're looking to see, is there um, a region on the X chromosome that has been expanded such that it predisposes women towards premature ovarian insufficiency? Um, and that is something that can increase generation to generation. So your mom and your grandma may have the same gene, but in them it was less. And, and so as each generation passes, that gene gets more and more unstable until finally you start showing some clinical effects. So those, those are other things that I, you know, I look at. And oftentimes we're having conversations about these things anyway. And, and it, it should, this should all theoretically be covered by insurance. But this is not a fertility issue. This is straight medical. And sometimes insurance agrees with that and sometimes they don't. Yeah, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't <laughs> in our state for sure. So in terms of medical conditions, we talked kind of a little bit more geared toward fertility. Are there any other organ systems that we should be looking at and people that have premature ovarian failure that could be impacted by that diagnosis? So being the autoimmune person amongst us, <laughs> having my own fair share of autoimmune conditions, that, that is actually something that we have to keep in mind, not only at the initial diagnosis, but to be checked regularly, um, usually on an annual basis. Um, people, uh, one of the main causes of premature ovarian insufficiency is autoimmune disease. And unfortunately, we don't have any really good tests to say, oh, this is the autoimmune disease that has caused your ovaries to kind of poop out on us. 
Um, but we know that people with autoimmune diseases tend to get other autoimmune diseases. So um, in somebody with premature ovarian insufficiency, we do need to check out things like checking, make sure we don't have thyroid disease that's developed, diabetes, adrenal disease, those types of things. So like endocrine conditions we're kind of focused on. Yes. Carrie, is there any specific recommendations about what should be tested on a yearly basis in those patients? For sure, you want to look at thyroid. Those are the big issues. You know, the other and another system that relies heavily on the endocrine system is bone. And because estrogen is a very powerful stimulator of born, bone um, formation and kind of a, what's considered to be a steady state. So your bone is constantly breaking down, but it's also constantly being remade. And estrogen is really powerful in making sure that the remaking portion happens. So when you have ovarian insufficiency and your ovaries are no longer producing estrogen because they're the prime place where estrogen is produced in the body, you all of a sudden lose all that estrogen. So if you're not taking outside estrogen in, your bone can really start to degenerate. Um, And that's part of the reason why for all of my patients who who get this diagnosis, I order what's called a DEXA scan um, initially And then that one typically isn't an every year follow-up. That's every couple of years. And it's mostly to make sure that bone health is continuing. That if you see it start to deteriorate at a faster rate, you can catch it and and adjust your therapy so that she is not um, going to suffer from osteopenia or osteoporosis, which is weakness of the bones or brittle bones um, at an earlier age because of this this other diagnosis, because all these things are interconnected. So Susan, say you had a patient that maybe, you know, just got this diagnosis and is kind of thrown a little bit for a loop and just kind of needs to take a break and and is not sure what she wants to do. Is there any recommendations you would make for her in terms of supplementation or hormonal treatment or anything like that? Absolutely. So our bodies are meant to have estrogen and progesterone exposure until our early 50s. The average age of menopause is 51. So what we know is, in addition to what Carrie talked about with um, bone loss, if we don't have that hormonal exposure, we can also have increased risk of heart disease and things like that. So Generally speaking, you know, if you need to kind of regroup and kind of think about things, because this diagnosis does usually throw people for a loop and that's, that's normal. That is absolutely normal. Very normal. Um, Getting, getting on some estrogen and progesterone um, actually can improve your health. It can actually make you feel better. Um, Sometimes it takes a little tweaking to figure out what exactly you need, but also know that you, um, kind of depending on the age that you're diagnosed, you may actually be on higher dosages than say your grandma, <laughs> okay? Because you know when, when we're treating women who are in their 50s for menopausal symptoms, our goal is to use the least amount of hormone replacement possible to get the desired results. So decreasing hot flashes, mood swings, what, what, whatever it may be. In this young, younger segment of people, that's actually not our goal. Our goal is kind of full body wellness and that you're supposed to be cranking out that estrogen. Yeah, even build bone, right? <laughs> exactly. And so... So it is something that, you know, sometimes people are like, oh my goodness, this is a, you know, they'll go and look at Dr. Google and it's like, well, this is a high dose. And it's like, yes, but you are 
25, you are 30, you should have a high dose. You know, we're not, we're not trying to do something that's super physiologic. So beyond what your body should normally be doing, but we're, we, we do want to make you physiologic because we want you to have a long, healthy life. And, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize how much more potent the estrogen is in birth control pills. It's like five times stronger than the estrogen that we give women for hormone replacement therapy. And most people don't think anything about being on birth control pills for several years with really high potent estrogen. And in fact, for younger women, I don't know about you guys, but that's one of the things I really um, recommend because then they're like kind of everybody else. They're doing oral contraceptive pills. They have a good amount of estrogen and, and we hope certainly they maintain their bone density. But in addition to that, there's been studies that have shown they might even build it just a little bit. And with that though, it's really important. And I think a lot of people are on the vitamin D bandwagon now. We all know that we just don't get out and get enough sun and we don't have enough vitamin D. So estrogen is probably the most important in helping to build bone density. But in addition to that, we want to also make sure that we have adequate amounts of vitamin D and calcium. And then the other thing is weight-bearing exercise. That's really, really important. Um, strength training, um, things like Pilates, resistance training, all that really helps build your muscles. And when it builds your muscles, it builds your bone too. So those are also really important things to remember for women with premature ovarian failure. One plug to people who are like, oh, I don't need vitamin D. I don't need calcium. I live in a really warm, sunny place. I mean, from Las Vegas, where we have over 300 days of sunshine a year, vitamin D deficiency is one of the biggest things I see. Really? That's surprising. Yeah. And so even if you think, oh, I'm totally fine, I live in a warm, sunny place or a cold, sunny place, doesn't really matter if it's a warmer, warm or cold, um, worth going on and worth protecting because because we see it even in these sunny places. And of course, if you use sunscreen, the sunscreen blocks the effects of vitamin D too. So that could be part of it as well. Um, so any last thoughts that you guys have, we didn't talk about specifically about fertility, and I think we're going to do that in another episode, but any specific information that you guys have that we didn't mention today? One of the things that's really helpful for us when we're working on your estrogen therapy is to figure out what is your baseline and what symptoms are affecting your quality of life. Um, I just had a lady who came in who I started her on estrogen and there's things like mood swings, sleeping at night. Um, hot flashes and vaginal dryness all of a sudden got better. And so there's there's a lot of other reasons why we start the estrogen in addition to just straight replacement um, and, and impact. So I would definitely say that it's worth getting the replacement and it's worth keeping just a notebook of I had X number of hot flashes today or my mood today is whatever. And just keep track of it over time because it helps you to see the benefit of what you're doing. And that makes it make more sense of, oh yeah, I should probably keep doing this. And the other corollary to that, it's always nice to schedule a follow-up visit. Like say when you get started on hormone replacement therapy, it's good to schedule a follow-up about three months later with your doctor. And if you have that notebook, which I haven't really told people to do that, that's a great idea, Carrie. Um, you know, instead of just trying to rely on your memory, you know, things kind of run together after three months, it would be really good to kind of see that. And I find that most of the time, even if I have to kind of talk patients into at least trying hormone replacement therapy, I find when they come back to see me at the end of three months, a lot of times they'll say, oh gosh, I just didn't realize how much it would have improved my mood. And so usually it's not a hard sell to keep patients on hormone replacement therapy because it really does benefit them with their mood and in a lot of other ways as well. 
Any last thoughts for you, Susan? I just want our listeners to know that if you are somebody who's faced with premature ovarian insufficiency is that know that your doctors are here for you. Know that, you know, sometimes you might need to talk to somebody like a counselor or a psychiatrist. This is a, this is a hard diagnosis it's a to deal diagnosis. with. It's, yeah. it's a tough diagnosis and you're, you're not in this alone and we want you to get the help that you need. And, and we have great ways for you to live a long, healthy life and hopefully achieve, you know, your dreams that you, you want to achieve, but know, know that you're not there alone. That I, and we, we acknowledge this, this is a hard one. I mean, I can tell you there's, I mean, if I could like sit there and talk about any infertility diagnosis, this is going to be the one that I'm not going to want to, cause it, it breaks our heart. Mm-hmm. Um, because we know that's, it, it, that's, the entire reason you're there. And, and so, but just know too, it's, it's not the end of the line though. And we haven't talked about fertility on this episode with premature ovarian failure, but I've had many patients who have been faced with this diagnosis been really sad. And a few years later, they end up having a baby in a different way and a way that they wouldn't have necessarily planned, but in the end they had a happy result. So it can happen to you too. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any one of us or submit any specific questions you have about infertility. All questions are answered anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more, the better. All right. We'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone.